0: Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's only Wednesday, which seems kind of odd, since this week seems like it is endless. Um, or, or maybe it's just simply because we're being tested. We have hurricanes, wildfires, a pandemic, a disastrous end to the war, and just as if somebody wants to, you know, determine, you know, how far we can push our political divisions. Hey, let's have a debate about abortion, Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court not blocking one of the nation's most restrictive abortion laws uh, down in, in Texas. Uh, joining me on the podcast today, former congressman and good friend of this <laughs> podcast, David Jolly. Hello hey, today, David.
1: You, <laughs> I know this this week has been the longest year in a few years, I feel like, right? <laughs> yeah. And and you have to wonder, Charlie, I have wondered <laughs> whether you like Joe Biden or you don't man, there's a lot on this person's shoulders right now. This is quite a month of this presidency. Tested. Yeah.
0: Well, and we're all being tested on all of it's this. True. I mean, I, 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 I'm I, only half-joking when I think that of the of the political simulation that we're all living in, that, that somebody is figuring, okay, so we've pushed this button and this button and this button. What could be worse? Okay, let's have a debate about abortion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and so well, let's, let, let's talk about this in just a moment. Because um, you know, trying to read in what the Supreme Court did and did not do with this uh, very restrictive uh, 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 law down in Texas, and of course, uh, you and I are speaking the day after President Biden's speech on Afghanistan. I want to get your take on all of that. But but I want to start with this because I'm I'm slightly obsessed with this um, this move by Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, and my my, my newsletter today I talk about the poli- the sort of the, the gangster politics of of the Republican Party. Yesterday, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House of Representatives, openly threatened the nation's telecom companies with political retribution, political retribution, if they complied with requests from the House's Select Committee on January 6, which is asking them to, at this point, to preserve uh, records of phone calls of people who might have been involved or witnesses to what happened on January 6. OK? So they're, 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 you know, they're, this is their request. He puts out a statement saying if the Democrats comply with the Democrat order to turn over private information, they are in violation of federal law and subject to losing their ability to operate in the United States. Okay, first, I don't think there's any violation of the law. But then he goes on to say, if companies still choose to violate federal law, a Republican majority will not forget and will okay. stand with Americans to hold them fully accountable under the law. Okay, so nice telecom company you got there, It'd be a shame <laughs> if anything would happen to it. And I mean what what's sort of breathtaking about this is that it is an really you know, in broad daylight crude attempt to obstruct the investigation through political sure intimidation. And he's not making a legal threat. He's not saying I'm going to sue you. I'm going to go to court. That's it's right. raw th- thug politics. And there's no gap between what he is saying and, for example, what Marjorie Taylor Greene said on the Tucker Carlson show last night. So listen to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson talking about this threat. Well, these telecommunications companies, if they go along with this, they will be shut down. And that's a promise. Good. I hope they're afraid of you. They should be. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so they're all in on this. This is a coordinated message. And sure. here we have small government pro-free market uh conservatives essentially saying we get back into power and um we're gonna we're gonna hammer you we're gonna shut you down we're going to put you out of business if you cooperate with a search for truth so that's
1: That's where we start david yeah. Look. Yeah. <laughs> so. So I'm, I'm glad you played the Marjorie Taylor Greene sound clip. But look, she's a crackpot, and so it's hard to even respond. But she's to on some, the same
0: page. But she, she's on the page right,
1: now. Well, which is telling, right? That that they're on the same page, right? But I I guarantee you that Marjorie Taylor Greene does not understand the Telecommunications Act or the Patriot Act no, or a lawful no. subpoena or how courts adjudicate it. So let's just set her aside for a moment and focus on Kevin McCarthy, who does understand that, or at least should understand that if he's the Republican leader in the House. And I think it's clear what we're seeing from Kevin is straight up thuggery designed to intimidate cooperating organizations, entities, big tech that might have information that ultimately is damning personally to Kevin McCarthy and politically to Republicans writ large. And this is a consistent pattern by Kevin, who understand, we all saw it in that first few days, he stood up and said, This insurrection was a result of Donald Trump's behavior, Donald Trump's rhetoric, and we have to do something about it. And then typical Kevin. The moment he realized that a further inspection of what happened and a further investigation would ultimately undo Kevin politically... You saw him act with every bit of weasel instinct that he is capable of acting in. And now he's engaging in a full-fledged cover-up. And from now until the end of this investigation, you will continue to see behavior like this. Kevin McCarthy is scared. And not only is he scared of the political ramifications and the news that would come out, but I promise you, Charlie, having served with Kevin when he thought he was going to ascend to the speakership. Remember when John Boehner stepped Mm -hmm. down and Kevin thought he had the keys to the kingdom, and they slipped out of his hand. I saw face to face a Kevin McCarthy for who he really is, and he is nothing more than a political animal, which there are many in Washington, right? This is not an indictment that somehow nobody else is as much of a political animal as Kevin McCarthy, but it is an indictment that he is not a national leader. He is a political animal, desperate to become Speaker of the House, and he will do whatever it takes. Remember when he came to office, he he was one of the young guns, Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, Kevin McCarthy. And Eric Cantor and Paul Ryan shot to seniority and leadership more quickly than Kevin. Kevin has been sitting there on the cusp of the speakership now for several years. He has it within his grasp. And I promise you, this is a desperate man acting out of desperation. And that's all this is. And that's the only lens through which we should look at Kevin as he continues to engage in this behavior. Well,
0: all of that is true, but n- now it's obvious that there's no gap between him and the base and the media ecosystem as well. I mean, the Republican oh, sure. Party seems to be completely embracing this kind of uh, cynical, crude uh, politics. Uh, one, one other point, though, it, what, 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 again, th- I'm having flashbacks to the Trump era, which I frequently do these <laughs> days, but... Um, what a surprise. The, uh, the the fact that this obstruction of the investigation is taking place in broad daylight in real uh, time. that they're, they're making no pretense about what they are yeah. doing. And and it's a reminder how what, what, what Donald Trump was able to get away with when he was obstructing the investigation into his own behavior. You know, n- none of it was subtle. None of it was secret. I mean, it was yeah, right, right there. He tweeted it out. And ultimately— I think that he succeeded in obstructing justice. So one of the sure. lessons I think the Republicans have learned from this is uh, this kind of political thuggery works and maybe they will pay no political
1: price for it. Yeah, you're right. There's no consequence to this type of behavior we've learned yeah. in an era of hyper-partisanship. And so what you're seeing is kind of this guileless, moral political behavior, yeah. that is looking at this strictly through a political and polling and electoral lens. And yeah. and what I mean by that is it's, it's very obvious. Republicans cannot engage on the substance of these issues and find political benefits. So what they have to do, as egregious and, and audacious as it is, they have to turn this into a vicious partisan war right? So they have to make that House committee. First of all, they have to defeat the bipartisan uh, special committee that had been floated Mm -hmm. out there. Now they have to defeat the integrity of this current House committee for the sole purpose of making this a partisan war. And as long as it's a partisan war, half the nation's going to follow Republicans and half the nation's going to follow Democrats. And so they know if they go through this kind of dispassionate analytical political exercise that ignores truth, ignores substance, but simply engages in the political practice of electioneering that they'll come out. Okay. With this. And, and they will, they will, because whatever comes out of the one six committee, I don't believe will change the minds of Republican performing voters.
0: No. And since we're on the subject of one six, obviously that that's all about the, the, the big lie, which continues. Uh, it, it is interesting. Um, for people who think that we, we are somewhat dark, um, the 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 timeline we're living in is actually darker than anything i would have imagined the retconning of january 6th, uh, the revisionist history you know turning uh, turning the rioters the people who beat on the police into political hostages political uh, prisoners <laughs> right. uh, turning ashley babbitt into uh, some sort of a a patriotic uh, m- yeah. martyr so what they're doing is they they are now normalizing the idea of a political insurrection of violence as a form of patriotic fighting. And this is all based on the lie. And if I could just indulge me for a moment, because there's something else I'm I'm, I'm somewhat obsessed with. You know, here in Wisconsin, um, the Republicans are now going ahead, you know, pushing the big lie. They're going to spend $680,000 on one of these forensic audits. It'll cost a lot more than that when they, if they mess with the machines. And the thing about it is that, I'm convinced that all of the Republican leaders know it's a lie. They know that Trump lost Wisconsin. And kind of amazingly, Senator Ron Johnson, who is, as we know, uh, prepared to believe anything. I mean, this is a guy who believes yep. every crackpot conspiracy yep. theory, goes down every rabbit hole, pushes every bogus drug out there, including the dewormer for for COVID. <laughs> Somehow, I mean, he knows that—, that he knows that Trump legitimately lost Wisconsin. So here's this tape. I don't think he knew he was being recorded. The audio is not fantastic here. But if you listen to him, what he's basically saying is, no, 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 the, the, there's nothing obviously skewed about the results. If, if Republicans, if all the Republicans had voted for Trump the way they voted for, for example, you know, assembly candidates, he would have won. He didn't get 51,000 votes that other Republicans got. And that's why he lost, which is let's just <laughs> play the audio. Because this is this is Ron Johnson talking when he doesn't think that he's on conservative talk radio or Fox News. You know,
1: you know that Joe so didn't win this election I just
0: so t- 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 he didn't win. T- t- do you, know the, do you,
1: know do you the, think that Joe Biden
0: t- t- do you know won? In Wisconsin, do you know the vote totals? I don't, no. I, So without I mean, knowing the vote totals, you, you can't even state that opinion. I just really need all the small chatter. Well, I mean, you, I you, know, no, 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 So let me lost. give you the vote totals. I know that there was a, a,
1: a, a late prior, night prior, dump
0: in Milwaukee. Prior, I don't, prior, don't remember exactly what the prior, number was. But prior, number we, we've done a recount in Milwaukee. We about it later. Prior, prior to, prior to we'll this election... we have done a recount in Milwaukee? Just under $1.5 votes. Okay. This election, Trump got a million six ten. No nice, say, ever him, one ever cracked one point five million. million. He said no. and then and then numerous the Democrats have gone, gone saying, over one point six or one point five. Idea, you so coming. now, for I'm the first word. time in history, we have a president's candidate beating um, my and vote total by 103,000 votes collectively. Let's uh, be glad of that. So he goes on and he's going through the numbers. And this is the remarkable thing, David, is he's absolutely right about all of this. So Trump loses Wisconsin by about twenty. 20,000, 20,682 votes. If all the Republicans, if all the voters who voted for Republican assembly candidates had voted, he would have gotten 51,000 more votes. If they had all the voters who voted for Republican congressional candidates had voted, Trump would have gotten more than, you know, another 30,000 votes. He would have won Wisconsin. So amazingly, Ron Johnson is absolutely right. But Again, they're all going to go along with this. And and in my newsletter this morning, I sort of go through that, you know, Scott Walker knows, Paul Ryan knows, uh, Reince yeah. Priebus knows, Congressman Mike Gallagher, and yet they keep throwing the boob bait to the bubbas out there. Yeah. And it's the cynicism of it.
1: It is. Well, so I, I think what's interesting in what Ron Johnson said is something that we don't really talk about enough, which is Donald Trump lost because a statistically significant portion of Republicans didn't like the guy, right? Yeah. That's, that, that's it, right? So when people say, oh, this can't be, there can't be the undercount for president of Republican performing voters who voted down ticket as as traditional Republicans. And the answer is, yes, they can, because they didn't like the mm-hmm. guy. Donald Trump was a jerk. And a lot of Republicans just don't like the guy. That's why he lost. And, and we were, so- We were
0: told that Denver Trumpers were irrelevant. As it turns out, they weren't.
1: They, were, they weren't. That's right. <laughs> okay. And so, so look, so there is truth in what Ron Johnson said, but what I take from that as well, and I, you know, I hate to say this coming off of the, the Kevin McCarthy thing, but I often say, look, I worked on the Hill for 20, 25 years. It took serving as a member before I got to see how broken and disgusting some of the political behavior actually is. Here's my take from that Ron Johnson tape, which is this. One more politician lying and manipulating voters, right? If you're a constituent of Ron Johnson's, you just heard what should be the most damning thing a politician can engage in, which is double speak. which is yeah. I'm going to say one thing to this crowd to make them feel good. I'm going to say one thing to this lady to make her feel good. It doesn't matter as long as I'm not getting caught. I can say whatever I want. That to me is it is leadership without conviction. It is leadership without any moral clarity it is leadership without truth. And that's what we heard from Ron Johnson on that tape.
0: Yeah, and and he said this before. We actually had a piece in the Bulwark uh, last year when he was in, had to fight a phone call with. Uh a former Republican county chairman here in Wisconsin, chairman of the Brown County, which is the Green Bay area, a Republican Party. His name is Mark Becker, and he is, He told he told Becker, you know, yeah, of course, uh, Biden won the election, but I can't say that because that would be political suicide. <laughs> so it's interesting that you know most most politi- I mean, I suppose you can give him credit because most most politicians, you know, know you, you you don't say your most cynical thing out loud to another person, but but Johnson doesn't have that filter. Okay, so let's uh, let's gears and talk about uh, the news of the day which uh, again is it's uh it, this is quite this is quite a news cycle and I want to get your take on Afghanistan and the and the president's speech yesterday but let's talk about something that happened in the middle of the night that is uh Not completely clear to me, Um, I'll I'll be honest with you. The Supreme Court did not take any action to block the new Texas abortion law. This Texas abortion law effectively bans all abortions. Uh, It's it's a rather extraordinary piece of of, of legislation. Um, And again, uh, you're a lawyer. I'm I'm, I'm not a lawyer. But one of the provisions of, of this law is that patients can't be sued uh, but doctors, staff members, counselors, yeah. people who pay for the procedure, even—this is my favorite part—even an Uber driver taking a patient to a clinic are all potential defendants. And plaintiffs who don't have to have any connection to the matter or show any injury of any person—it's be like it's, it's sort of like abortion vigilantism—they're uh, entitled to $10,000 in their legal fees recovered if they win, and prevailing defendants are not entitled to their legal fees. Look, okay, so— I I want to make it clear that I am pro life. I've been pro life for a long time. I am not a fan of Roe versus Wade. And yet, I am unclear about this law and what the court is, in fact, doing. You have much deeper understanding, so David Jolly, explain <laughs> what just happened.
1: What? Yes, yeah, so happened. Charlie, as I've said, I, I'm a lawyer who has studied this at length, but I'm not practicing. And certainly, in the world of D.C. politics and national politics, there are experts far greater than I am. But but let me break it down, kind of in some non-lawyer speak. Um, I I think the rhetoric around this being a ban. Though functionally, this does extend a ban further than other states. That's not so much how the courts are going to test it. The courts are going to test this around undue burden, and it goes specifically to what you just said. So big picture here, <clears throat> since Roe v. Wade uh, was was established in 73, and, t- and there are two critical decisions, right? Roe v. Wade said a woman has a fundamental right to privacy Uh, unrestricted access to abortion in the first trimester. In the second, there's a balancing test. And in the third, the state, and this is very important, in the third, the state as a state actor can prohibit it. Fast forward to about 92, the other key abortion decision was Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And that said, look, we're going to keep with this idea of, of the trimester narrative as you know, from absolute freedom to a balancing test to the ability of the state to restrict. And Casey said, we're really going to function or focus on two things. Make it a viability test, right? Recognizing that maybe viability is not perfectly situated around, around trimesters. And secondly, we're going to focus on the test of undue burden and whether or not laws that don't actually prohibit outright do create an Mm -hmm. undue burden to this fundamental right. Those concepts are very important for what we're about to see in Texas. So along those last 50 years, conservatives and pro-life groups have have tried to overturn Roe just outright, been unable to. And so they've played with different ideas to test Roe and at times using Roe against itself. So the viability question being a perfect example is viability different in 2021 than it was in 1973? Absolutely, it is. And so, almost using the Roe standard and the Casey standard, they've gone to the courts to say, look, maybe it isn't third trimester, maybe it's five months, maybe it's four months. They've tried to chip away using the viability argument. I think that's an important national conversation. If Roe is the standard and Casey's the standard and viability is the balancing test, Boy, does the issue of life and abortion look different in 21 than it does in 73 and 92? Of course it does. Now, what Texas has done is, again, another strategy of kind of the pro-life conservative Republicans. They've said, let's remove the state as the, the entity that will yeah. be prohibiting. And by doing that, we can step outside of the Roe-Casey framework, right? If Roe and Casey was established to say the state— cannot prohibit. Then what Texas decided to do is let's establish an individual right of action. To your point, the Uber driver can sue. A relative can sue. Anybody that well, the Uber, wants to, the Uber driver can be sued. Or can be sued. Sorry, you're, you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. It, right, yeah. It basically, anybody, and this is very untested, right? This is what's, what is what is at issue overnight. Anybody can basically sue anyone else who had a hand in the performance of an abortion after, I believe, six weeks. And what that's done is it's created a personal right of action. So the the Supreme Court last night had a chance before this law went into place to put it on hold, right? And, And I do think a progressive court would have put this on hold, but they would not have invalidated what Texas did. The reason the court is uncertain exactly what to do is because there is not the established Roe-Casey jurisprudence around this private right of action. Now, there could be, right? A progressive court could have said, we believe, though the state is not an actor, what the state has done has created an undue burden Mm -hmm. to a woman's access to abortion, right? If now the fear of a doctor performing abortion is I'm going to get sued 12, 12 different ways, and therefore, I'm not going to perform it, that is a reduction of access for that patient, And therefore, you could make the case it's an undue burden. I think some courts would have put it on hold until it could be tested. The silence of the Supreme Court suggests that they are going to wait for a Texas case to emerge. And you better believe something will happen probably as early as this week, where the actors on both sides, there will be a private right of action filed in Texas, and that will start the process of this getting heard by a court. I think it is hard to see how this survives the undue burden test of Casey. And ultimately, then that will be a bigger test for this Supreme Court. Do they throw out Roe and Casey and create a, a new framework?
0: I well, would they tell, might.
1: They might. But I would tell you every time this is tested, ultimately, ultimately tested, even conservative courts say, yeah, we're just going to leave well enough alone.
0: No, this, this strikes me as just a strange sort of public policy allowing every individual to sue. Um, and I agree with you on the on the undue burden test. The question is whether or not a 6-3 conservative majority is, in fact, prepared to throw out all of these tests, you know, to throw out Roe, to throw out uh, Casey. And this would be one of the cases to do that with, right? I mean, there's some other cases, but this would certainly be one of them. But the whole idea that the mechanism would be this storm of litigation, Strikes me as a very strange sort of flex by conservatives, who generally have not encouraged the litigation culture, and the, the potential for abuses seem like overwhelming. Sure, you know, to have sure, people, sure. Um, you know, have harassment lawsuits. I also wonder that whether or not just the existence of the law is going to have such a chilling effect that, in effect, it does shut down all abortions in Texas even without the court's action. I mean, if, so if this drags right. through the courts and it takes, you know, months or maybe even, e- you know, next year, who knows? Um, when do you, I mean, when do you think a, a decision might come down? It, it How long could, will this last?
1: It could be years from now, right? Before a final decision yeah. is reached. The question is, are there any preliminary injunctions? And I think that's what the pro-choice community was hoping for from the Supreme court last night. And you use the term chilling effect. That is exactly right. That chilling effect is essentially an undue burden on a woman's access to abortion. And the other undue burden, and and I'm stepping way out of my lane here as a non-practicing lawyer and as a man, not a woman, but the notion that that a woman may not know she's pregnant by the time the statute then forbids her from seeking an abortion or or puts penalties, I should say, put penalties, not forbids, on seeking an abortion that in itself is an undue burden right if if at 7 weeks i discover that i am pregnant but now the law creates this penalty for me seeking an abortion that that is a a prima facie undue burden i i would think uh, even a conservative court would recognize
0: Well, except a a conservative court might decide that that's exactly what we want to do, that we want to put an (laughs) undue burden because we we want to put an end to abortion. If you are, I suppose, consistently pro-life and you want to end abortions, then, yeah, you you want to put every possible burden on. I guess this whole idea, though, of suing everybody involved, um, I I, I think this is one of those things that, that doesn't fail a certain common sense check. Okay, so an Uber driver drives somebody and somebody can sue him $10,000 for all of that when he has done nothing wrong whatsoever, is not involved in all of this. Uh, That doesn't pass a basic common sense smell test to me.
1: And And Charlie, a a court that upholds it, wait for it, would be considered an activist court. This this is the interesting thing. I think what you're getting at step back. Conservatives love to say progressive courts are activist courts. The reality is you can have an activist conservative court as well. And that is actually what conservatives are hoping for in this moment, an activist conservative decision.
0: Okay, so let's take a deep breath because I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> what, 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 what the, yeah, I mean, it's like oh goodness, you know. So what should we talk about now? Hurricanes, wildfires, or, or, or pandemics? We can we can segue. And by the way, you know, you say stuff like that. You know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse is more like six horses of the apocalypse right now. So so let's 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 take a, let's take a deep breath. And when we come back, I want to get your take on the president's speech. Uh, this has been a momentous week. Uh, the the end of of our military operation in Afghanistan. I'm not sure it means the end of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, And the president uh, spoke to the nation yesterday. I want to get your take on that, uh, uh, David Jolly, when we come back. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, Just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free. But if you want to listen to the secret podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like the Next Level podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. All right. We are back with former Congressman David Jolly. So Joe Biden, who has been struggling, um, I think, uh, to hit all the right notes, that's my take on this, um, about uh, what happened in Afghanistan, spoke to the nation yesterday, and in part this is what he said.
1: I was not going to extend this forever war, and I was not extending a forever exit. The decision to end the military airlift operations at Kabul airport was based on unanimous recommendation." Of my civilian and military advisors, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and all the service chiefs and the commanders in the field.
0: Okay. So you 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 watched the speech, you listened to the speech, David Jolly. What was your take?
1: I think to Joe Biden's credit, we have a president who is owning his decision, and he is owning the successes of it and the failures of it. Now, clearly, he wants it to be seen as a success, and where it is seen as a failure, he would like to point to the fact that he was handed a very bad a bad deck by his predecessor. Um, I, in full disclosure, I don't want to hide the ball. I disagree with what Joe Biden did, but I have not engaged in a lot of the, the social media rhetoric and the TV mm-hmm. rhetoric because I really mean it. I, I, one, I don't think we should play the blame game against Trump, which I know a lot of Democrats are trying to do. But I think it is fair to look at this through the lens of contrast. You know, I, I believe Donald Trump would have done anything in Afghanistan and sold out American interest for a nickel if he could have gotten a cheap headline. And he would have lied to us about the dangers of it. And he would have told us what we were seeing didn't really happen, right? At least with Joe Biden, we have a president who was honest with the American people throughout. Recall his very first speech, he said, the buck does stop with me. He said that. Um, And then yesterday you saw a a president who perhaps he was being a little defensive, but I think he and his political team knew he had to lay out the case that defended his decision, because otherwise he is on kind of this perilous fulcrum of this could go either way, particularly given the deaths of of U.S. service members uh, just in the last week. So, look, I, I disagree with Donald Trump's decision. I think if we take a step back as a country, as a culture politically, how we all engage. Um, To me, there's a bit of a, we're looking ourselves in the mirror in terms of our hyper-partisanship. We want everything solved right now. We want to blame the blue jerseys or the red jerseys. This was a tough decision, one that I disagreed with personally, but I'm glad we have a president who's being honest about it and accepting both the success and failures of his own decision.
0: Okay, but was he really accepting all the responsibility? Because you know, again, he says the buck stops with him, but but he has shifted the blame a little bit. He, you know he's talked about the Americans who stayed in Afghanistan. He's he's obviously shifted some of the responsibility to Donald Trump. He's very much blamed the the Afghan government. He said very negative things about the Afghan security forces, uh, and and clearly is very very angry at the decision of President Ghani to leave. So yes, yeah. there is that. There's a little bit of cognitive of dissonance, isn't there? Where he's saying, yes. this was my decision, I own it, but, uh, and, you know, and then there is the, the the shifting of responsibility. And then there's also the claiming of success when people are looking around going, how can you say it's a success when we left so many people behind?
1: It's, it's absolutely not a success. I mean, the ad is going to write itself politically. Seven months into the Biden administration, the Taliban is back. And that is a that is a truth of what has happened in the last two weeks we also lost 13 American service members. That's a truth. And I think this is a a situation, as I mentioned, all of us as a political culture are looking in the mirror and seeing our own partisanship. This is a case where multiple things can be true, right? To your point, I think Joe Biden is saying the buck stops with me, but he's also trying to point out these other things that are true, right? Which is the Afghan president left, the Afghan army was not able to defend themselves. Those are also true. and, And so I think, The question for the United States is, are we more secure as a result of Joe Biden's decision or are we not? And that security includes, have we provided greater security to our forward deployed troops who were previously exposed to the risk that we saw resulting in in the loss of 13 lives? But look, is it good that our troops are are gone? Sure, that's that's a net good. Is it good that they got all the civilians out that they could? Sure. That's, that's a net good. Is it bad that the Taliban's in charge and now is a greater threat to the US? Yeah, that that's true as well. Are our over the horizon capabilities to respond to terrorism? Are they as strong as if we have an on the ground force equipped with air and ground assets? No, of course our over the horizon capabilities are not as great. All these things can be true and I think politically as a culture we, we all just want to say that what we see as true is is it, and there's no other narrative. And I think what Joe Biden's trying to do is wrestle with the fact that he knows this was not a glaring success. He believes he made the right decision. He believes Americans wanted an end to the war. But there's also a constituency out there. And I guess when I when I say up front that I disagree with, with Joe Biden, I don't think this is a neocon perspective to suggest that we had not had... Uh, we had not had a casualty in 14 months. There was not an active war footing. Perhaps we could have declared an end to hostilities, but left a stabilization force like we do in other theaters, right? The, the point that's been made that we have forces in Germany and, and in South Korea and other areas around the Asian Pacific. The reality is we had a democratic government that was friendly to the West, that was also protecting human and basic civil rights of women and children and others. Was it always under challenge from the Taliban? Yes, but you could argue that because we were there, one of the greatest successes in human and civil rights and one of the greatest successes in protecting American security was, were those 2,500 forces. And I don't buy the fact that people say, yeah, but Trump set this deadline. Look, Biden changed the deadline once. He could have renegotiated. He could have changed it again. Biden could have also began the active evacuation of people eight weeks ago, not just once the government toppled and created this crisis. He chose not to. And and that is where to, I know it's weird in this environment where I say, I disagree with all these things and I think we're on a less secure footing. I really do see a president, and perhaps it's just coming off the last four or five years, I do see a president who is speaking truthfully to the American people, trying to convince us it was the right decision. And he knows the politics will, a lot of the politics will be on his side and a lot will be against him. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot
0: to talk about there, in, including where do we set the bar? Because if the bar is set at Donald Trump, that's awfully low. And then, then this is the <laughs> no, problem. Right. I mean, you're because right. I find myself going through this and saying, oh, OK, this was really awful, but it would have been worse with, with Trump. It's like, wait, what is the standard we hold someone to? Because if, if if it's Donald Trump, then we have really ratcheted down our expectations from our government and our, our president, because that's pretty much rock bottom. Um Yes, the president has been, you know, you know, more forthright. But not, you know, polit- I'm I'm getting ratioed on on Twitter right now because I, I tweeted out a quote from a political uh, article. Uh, this is an anonymous administration official, and by the way, during the Trump years, um, anonymous administration officials were being quoted all the time. Just, just reminding <laughs> people, um, who said. I'm absolutely appalled and literally horrified. We left Americans there. It was a hostage rescue of thousands of Americans in the guise of a non-combatant evacuation operation, and we have failed that no fail mission. And so he says this to Politico when the president is basically touting his his success. So you know, yeah. yes, I, I think he's being candid. He's taking responsibility, but but you know, there is that you know that that the happy talk cannot. Really cover up the no, fact I, that right. this 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 was a humiliation, and I guess the, the to your basic question, which is the right question, is America uh, better off or safer? Is, is number one, you know, what is the tangible damage to America's reputation and to our image? And have we emboldened the Islamists who have been in retreat and decline? Because around the world, I'm guessing that, you know, the, I mean, people are looking at the Taliban and thinking, you know, you just defeated the great Satan. Al Qaeda issued a statement saying how wonderful this is. So this is a moment of weakness and triumph for our enemies. And that generally is not a good thing. That generally That's does right. not make you safer.
1: No, the, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and, Let's break down just two or three elements quickly, starting with the evacuation, right? Because in the partisan lens, a lot of people saw the immediate failure when when the when the Western government collapsed and the Taliban took over, and then we had to get these people out. It was a significant failure point and fair to be judged as that. And and the Biden administration and the State Department and the Defense Department. We're not being truthful in saying they had prepared for everything. They had not prepared for this, because if they had prepared for this, there would have been an immediate plan. But there wasn't. Yeah. But also then, a second element, they then got it right, right? They, they then largely got it right in terms of getting the people out. And so you saw a lot of Democrats circle around Biden saying, oh, look, they're doing all the right things now. Well, then we learned they didn't get it exactly right because they let the Taliban provide the security perimeter and we lost 13 American service members. That's a failure point as well for which this administration bears responsibility. Those are all elements, though, to a much more significant question, which is the Taliban is back seven months into Joe Biden's presidency. Does this create a threat equal to what we were facing on the eve of 9-11-2001? No, Mm -hmm. it doesn't. We have greater intelligence capabilities, greater surveillance capabilities right now. As the Biden administration says, we have the -the over-the-horizon capabilities, that is true. We have that in a way we did not have 20 years ago. But that does not mean that we are just as safe and just as secure as we were last month when the Taliban was being held at bay and we had service members on the ground. And look, in the political lens, Charlie, as, as much as this is one of the most important issues that we can be talking about, whether or not the Taliban's in charge of Afghanistan or not will have zero substantive impact on the next election on the midterms. But whether or not Americans are see, looking at ourselves as being more or less secure, that is a dispositive part of the next election. Do we feel a greater threat as a result of the world environment, or do we feel just as secure? That's a very top-line question for every voter that will inform how they perform in the in the midterms and ultimately in the next presidential election.
0: Okay, so the, the other threat facing the—or challenge facing the administration, because they're all happening at, at, at once— uh, the, you know, the president has multiple crises, whether you want to talk about three or four, uh, n- not just this, but also the cleanup from the hurricane. I, I, th- I would argue that the the biggest threat other than this, I mean, the biggest challenge, obviously, is uh, is is the pandemic and what's happening right now. And you are from Florida. Uh, yeah. Your governor there, uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, continues to be a lightning rod because he it's extraordinary to me what's happening in Florida. The numbers are so horrific. Um, the, the 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 burden on the on the hospitals, the spread among young people, and here you have a governor who clearly thinks that this is the ticket for ticket to his nomination in 2024, continuing to rail against many of these the mandates public health mandates, including mask mandates. So, give me your sense of what Ron DeSantis is doing and how it's actually, you know, manifesting itself sure. in in the in the real world. I, I wanted to not use the word playing, yeah, manifesting so itself. Yeah,
1: in the real world, um, Ron DeSantis is a terrible administrator of the public health in the state of Florida, state for which he serves as the chief executive. Its citizens are in a more dangerous situation because of his leadership than we would be if we had a chief executive who actually attended to prevention, to vaccinations, to mask wearing, to the basic public health behaviors that should be incentivized. Instead, he's going around the state, you know, beating the drumbeat of individual freedom, but also turning conservatism on on its head and saying, we're not going to allow local control. Look, you can make the case that Ron DeSantis, his conservative darling, <clears throat> is anything but conservative. He is spending more from Tallahassee than past Republican governors would. He is also undoing local control, government closest to the people. And he's engaging in this, in this very Trumpian style of governance, which, which has been on the rise within the Republican Party, right? Trump and DeSantis are not, are not unique in that. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, what he's done, and I'll go back to my first point. He has made Florida a dangerous state to live in and a dangerous state in which to send your children into the classroom. Uh, My wife, Laura, and I have two young kids, not quite school age. But, Charlie, I mean this not with political rhetoric, but I mean it with the conviction of of a father. We would not send our children to school in Florida if they were of school age. We wouldn't do it. Absolutely not. Not a chance. Not with what the public health data shows with the unknowns of the Delta variant, with its implications for children's health. All of these broader questions about even the vaccinated, which my wife and I are, can possibly carry a a viral load as high as the unvaccinated. You could share it with your unvaccinated children. I, I think in many ways, we are in a more dangerous situation now than we were at the beginning of the pandemic. But for the mitigation of of the the results of those who contracted who are vaccinated right that is that's a net positive but in terms of the spread of the virus this is just as bad as a year ago when we were shut down and i think be it fatigue or be it the the political leadership or failed leadership of people like ron desantis we're ignoring the peril and it's having real life human health and life and death consequences
0: so politically though does it work? I mean, here's the strange dynamic that that we have. We know that that might hurt him among independents. That might hurt him in a general election. But this is still this is still the gold standard for the Republican base, because as, as we talked about with, uh, with with Kevin McCarthy, there are no consequences for Republicans yeah. that demagogue this issue that you know raise questions about uh, vaccines or push uh, or push horse dewormers or anything. You know, that's the he fights. Have you noticed, by yeah. the way, that sometimes the fight is about the fight. It kind of (laughs) feels that way sometimes. What are you fighting about? It does. I don't. I forgot what I'm fighting about. As long as we're fighting, and in this case, you're 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 fighting really reasonable, common sense responses. And every poll I've seen would suggest that the very strong majorities of people, including strong majorities of parents, have no problem with these vaccine rules or the mask mandates.
1: Yeah. So so if I was a political advisor to the to the Florida Democrats, but I would say Democrats writ large. This is a situation where stop fighting the fight on the Republicans' playing field. You got to pull them over to your playing field. And what I mean by that is Republicans have <clears throat> very successfully made this about personal freedom, right? I I had a yeah. column up on Medium recently where I said, we've lost the war on COVID, not because of science, but because of surrender. And the idea yeah. was that we have allowed Republican political leaders to pit personal freedom against the greater calling of patriotism. Two fundamental American values, right? Protect my personal freedom. But the second one is the notion of doing something for the greater good, the idea of, of vaccinating and yeah. masking up, whatever it might be. Um, I saw recently someone put it that our independence is a product of our interdependence, right? If we don't protect our interdependence, we'll lose all of our independence because our society as we know it will begin to unravel. So what Republicans have done is they have pitted personal freedom against public health, which essentially is the patriotic argument, that of public health. And and here's the inevitable. They cannot pivot off of the personal freedom argument because they will lose, they cannot backtrack because they will lose. It will show weakness. It will suggest that they were wrong. So if they're not going to pivot, and this is my advice to Democrats, you've got to drag them off of that playing field into an area that they're unprepared for. And so, for, for example, in Florida, I think one of the ways you beat a governor like Ron DeSantis is you begin to make the argument about incompetence. Don't have the argument over freedom. Don't have the argument over ideology. Don't call him Death santis Don't say he's a mean guy who wants to kill children, right? None of that is actually going to work. All that's going to do is fire up your base. But if you begin a very disciplined message that this is a governor who presided over a state where, where deaths went up after we had access to the vaccine, this is a governor who presided over the state who did not know that our state had to make a request to the federal government for additional ventilators. He learned about it from the press. This is a governor who did not know that the state had failed to request additional food assistance for children, vulnerable children, for which the state was eligible, but we failed to do that. This is a governor who, while people were dying in Florida, has been playing border patrol cop with Governor Abbott in Texas, giving conservative speeches in Utah and going to fundraisers in New Jersey, all while deaths are spiking in the state of Florida and while school kids are contracting it and you have school districts having to shut down. Rome is burning, and we have a governor who is ignorant and doesn't understand it, and he's incompetent. If you begin to show that the governor has no clothes, he can't defend that. But if you are willing to accept his arguments of personal freedom and then engage in the, yeah, but is it freedom or do we need to do the right thing? We're going to split this 50-50, and Republicans are going to win re-election in the state of Florida. So this this
0: is going to make everybody's head hurt, but you know <laughs> you know it, as, as part of this argument for freedom, um, the 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 anti-vax anti-mask um, right has adopted the phrase. My body, my choice. <laughs> you, you notice this. Okay. So they have wrapped themselves into my body, my choice. And part of this was, I think, maybe initially was to troll the pro choice left or you know, the pro choice middle, whatever. Because, of course, conservatives and pro lifers have never believed it was my body, my choice, if in fact it would impact the life or health of someone else. Right. I mean, you know, this was, this is how everything has become changed. It, it, it's, it's, if you're pro life, you're saying that no we need to restrict your freedom because it involves another person and that's the entire basis of the pro-life movement except these same people without any sense of coherence whatsoever have now adopted the my body myself (laughs) freedom freedom of choice when it comes to the mask and the vax and and now that we have abortion and the pandemic just watch this debate play out. You know what I'm saying here? I mean, this is—it will make your head explode. It's like, okay, pick a lane. Which lane do you want to be in? If you want to say, you know, I should be free to do whatever I want with my own body, okay, stick with that lane, right? But they're not. So because
1: China, nothing <laughs> matters anymore. When right. you know, when I served and and I actually tried to do things in Congress, I you know, I was that Republican who said, Oh, Republicans, we can actually do something on gun control and marriage equality, campaign finance, climate science, all this stuff, right? And I realized it it's not that it's not that we couldn't, it's just that there was zero interest in doing anything tangibly. But then you see these crazy arguments and you think, How do these people get reelected? how is it that we reward this behavior how is it that we as individuals on our social media accounts amplify the same garbage my wife often looks at me and says it's because nothing matters anymore and yeah, and so look like, <clears throat> this is where charlie i'm going to make a shameless plug yeah. i really i really think in this era of nothing matters I, I think there's an opportunity for a new political coalition. And I know you've kind of dipped your toe in all these different mm-hmm. uh, narratives and organizations. And is there a, a way to coalesce people who are frustrated with today's politics? It's why I, I serve as a chairman of the Serve America movement. I'm involved in a group that's trying to build a new party movement very precisely in states across the country. I do think at some point... There is a breaking point for for the American people, at least enough of them to say, look, we're not going to go along these partisan roads we've been going along before. That's the decision I've made. And honestly, it's been very liberating. It's why I get to laugh about a lot that we talk about, because you can see the hypocrisy in our political leadership. Uh, At the end of the day, though, look, we only have one country and our future is in our hands. It's going to be what we ultimately make it as a result of the behaviors and activities we engage in today.
0: No, I obviously couldn't agree with you more about this. And of course, that's the that's the, that's the the scary thing as well, is that we do get the government and the political culture that we deserve. And we're getting it good and hard right now.
1: <laughs> <We are.
0: laughs> David Jolly, thank you so much for coming back on the Bulwark podcast. I appreciate it very much.
1: Charlie, great to be with you. And congratulations on everything you keep doing at the Bulwark. It's fantastic.
0: Well, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.